0: Anarchy in the Age of Dinosaurs First section How I forgot the Spanish Civil War and learned to love anarchy It looks like summer has finally arrived. I've been cramped up in this apartment, working on this book for too long. I realize now that we never finished our conversation about the Spanish Civil War. That revolutionary moment when anarchists came so close to actually creating a new society not only worth dying for, but worth living for. Our talks seemed to last forever. You filled me in on the background, the gritty details and militias and collectives, resistance and solidarity, everything. I always thought of it as the closest we ever got, something to be admired and obsessed over. It nearly drove me crazy to imagine the possibilities they had. How could we not mythologize the struggles of far-off places like Spain and fantasize what it would be like to fight in a real revolution? I realize today, looking in the pages of this book, that I don't give a damn about the Spanish Civil War. Not to say that it wasn't an important moment in history, but legends alone aren't enough for me anymore. I don't think of them as the real anarchists compared to the second-rate anarchists that we see ourselves to be. We have to live and struggle against what we face today. The anarchists of revolutionary Spain would probably rather be... Rather we fight our own struggles today than spend so much time discussing theirs. The Spanish anarchists were just regular folks, and they did exactly what we'll do when we get the opportunity. Our collective has been working on this book for over a year, and it's our broadside for anarchy today. I hope you enjoy it. Love, the Curious, aid, curious George Beguine What you hold in your hands is not a traditional book. Think of it more as a DNA library, or a pair of bolt-cutters. In other words, a dare. Books about, quote, politics usually have a concise purpose in narrowly written essays that you expected to quickly defend or mercilessly attack. If they are successful, so we are told, the authors win, will win support for a particular faction or discredit a competing one. We hope for something else, opening up as many questions as it answers, Think of this more as a collection of field observations written by renegade anthropologists who have lit their degrees on fire to live in the forest and scale skyscrapers. Besides haunting the nation's info shops, we have been recording the muttered prophecies of street-corner falafel vendors, writing love poetry disguised as politics, and living politics disguised as love poetry. We are anarchists who have cultivated our resistance in the heart of the American empire, This is our tiny contribution to the communities of resistance which have fed our hopes and nurtured our ambitions. When you close a book, you're done with it. You can either entome it upon your shelf or if it's really something precious, give it to a friend. Do not let this rot on a shelf. Give it away. Leave it at a vacant bus stop to be found by a stranger or use it to keep warm on cold nights. The only way to dispose of this book of this text is to light it on fire. Anti-copyright, 2003. Everything in this publication is available for non-commercial use. Reproduce, copy, borrow, detour, plagiarize, or steal any images, ideas, or text for your own use. Anarchy in the Age of Dinosaurs by the Curious George Begrade. editor's note. Below are unedited entries that Dr. Errol Falkland's recent log book. From Dr. Errol Falkland's recent log book, Dr. Falkland is one of the leading researchers, researchers in paleopoliticology, and his research, recent research has been published in Nature, Left Turn, and the New England Review of Paleopoliticology. He and a number of his students from Ferro University spent this summer evacuating some new sites in North America. We would like to thank Dr. Falkland and his students for providing access to these previously unpublished findings. Journal Entry May 1st We found an exceptionally rich site this week in the shallows of the Appalachians in southwest Pennsylvania. A number of specimens were found in excellent condition, including the first complete skeletal remains of proletarian Maximus. Proletarian Maximus is undoubtedly the ancestor of numerous other small forms of proletarius, that is, class saurus, anarcho-commitorus, syndicalius, polyorius. What is exciting about this find is that one can easily observe the politico-environmental factors that allowed such a lumbering beast to somehow survive into the modern age. Though there has been, been some disagreement among researchers, there can now be little doubt that currently isolated and endangered species, such as the wobbly nators and their ilk, are directly related to this mid-19th century behemoth. The signifying features of this animal are its immense size, its slow movement, and its propensity to stumble into quagmires. This particular specimen was no doubt slaughtered by federal wrecks. Over the past decades, a number of partial and remains of proletarian maximus have been found, suggesting that their slow movement made them easy prey not only for federal wrecks, but also terrapinkert- pinkertons and other larger, more dangerous predators of the mid-19th and early 20th centuries. Evolutionarily, these animals relied on larger and larger mass to protect themselves from the predatory animals of the capital capital Sormus genus. Their inability to adapt and reliance on face-to-face confrontations with large predators often made them easy meals for these rapturous killers. Only the smaller forms seem to have died natural deaths, apparently not not considered large enough meals for the predators and left to marginalized areas in North America, such as college campuses. Proletarian Maximus North Americanus is often confused by even seasoned paleopoliticologists as being the same animal as Proletarian Maximus European or even the specialized hybrid of Proletarian Maximus Español of the Iberian Plains. Taxidermic analysis along with new fecal research points out important differences and goes a long way to explain the stunted growth of the North American P. Maxis instead of a manifesto we live in an age of dinosaurs all around us enormous social economic and political behemoths lumber through destroyed environments casting life-threatening shadows over the entire planet there is a titanic struggle taking place in our communities as capitalist rex and statosaurus struggle to fill their bellies with more resources and power while fending off the claws of competing species such as the newly, newly savage dactylus. T- the battle between these giants is terrible and rages on, but it cannot last. Evolution is against these doomed tyrants. Already their sun is dimming, and the bright eyes of others gleam in the darkness, demanding something else. Not all these eyes are much different from the struggling reptilian overlords that currently dominate the globe. They have inspired smaller dinosaurs, waiting their turn for dominion. These smaller ones are the fossilized ideologies of the left. Despite alluring promises, they offer only a cuddlier version of the current system and in the end are no more liberating than the larger masters, such as the socialist governments of Western Europe. Their talons may be smaller, and their teeth not as sharp, but their appetite and methods are the same as their larger kin. They long for mass, the eternal dream of the child, to be massive. They believe if they can reach enough mass through parties, organizations, and movements, then they can challenge the master dinosaurs and tear power away from them. In the cool shadows of the night, in the treetops of forgotten forests, and in the streets of devastated cities, there are still other eyes, quick eyes, and slender bodies fed on hope, eyes that gleam with the possibility of independence. These small creatures live in, in, the, per- in the periphery, in the footsteps and shadows of dinosaurs. Their ears do not respond to the call of the smaller dinosaurs who want to consume them and create one big dinosaur to usurp all others. These small, warm-blooded creatures are many and varied, living on the discarded abundance of the world that the dinosaurs and their arrogance trample over. They scheme together in the shadows and dance while the exhausted giants sleep. They build and create, find new ways to live, and rediscover forgotten ones, confident that the tyranny will end. We know that this draconian reign will not last forever. Even the dinosaurs knew their age must end. The meteor will surely hit. Whether by the work of the curious, warm-blooded ones, or by some unknown catastrophe, the bad days of gargantuan reptilian authority will end. The drab uniform of armored scales will be replaced with a costume of feathers, fur, and supple skin of a million hues. This is anarchy in the age of dinosaurs. A Dream of Mass the fatal flaw of dinosaur thought is an unsatiable desire for mass. The roots of this hysterical urge can be traced back to the smoke-choked nights of the 19th century, a long night we have not left. However, the exact origins of this insistence on becoming a mass do not interest us. Instead, we want to understand how this dinosaur thought makes its way into our present cultures of resistance and what we can create to replace it. The desire for mass dictates nearly everything a dinosaur does. Its insatiable lust governs not only its decisions, but also its very organization. Mass organizations, even in the presentation of themselves to others, whether potential allies or the media, engage in a primitive chest puffing to feign that they are more massive than they actually are. Just as the early dinosaurs just as the early dinosaurs spent nearly every moment of their walking lives in search of food, the dinosaurs of the left expend the majority of their resources and time chasing the chimera of mass. More bodies at the protest, more signatories, and more recruits. The continued attraction of mass is no doubt a vestigial dream from the days of past revolutions. Every lonely soul selling a radical paper under the giant shadows of gleaming capitalist billboards and under the gaze of a well-armed cop secretly daydreams of the masses storming the Bastille, the crowds raiding the Winter Palace, or the throngs marching into Havana. In these events' fantasies, an insignificant individual becomes magically transformed into a tsunami of historical force. The sacrifice of her individuality seems to be a token price for the chance to be part of something bigger than the forces of oppression. This dream is nurtured by the majority of the left including many anarchists, the metamorphosis of one small, fragile mammal into a giant, unstoppable dinosaur. The dream of mass is kept alive by the traditional iconography of the left, drawings of large, undifferentiated crowds, bigger-than-life workers, representing the growing power of the proletariat, and aerial photographs of legions of protesters filling the streets. These images are often appealing, romantic, and empowering, in short, good propaganda. However, no matter how appealing, we should not trick ourselves into thinking that they are real. These images are no more real or desirable than the slick advertisements offered to us by the cynical capitalist system. Traditionally, anarchists have been critical of the homo- homogen- homogeneity that comes with any mass, mass production, mass media, mass destruction, Yet many of us seem powerless to resist the image of the sea of people flooding the streets, singing solidarity forever. Terms like mass mobilizations, the working class, and the mass movement still dominate our propaganda. Dreams of usurpation and revolution have been imprinted on our vision from fast struggles. We have bought a postcard from other times and want to experience it ourselves. If immediate massive worldwide change is our only yardstick, the efforts of a small collective or affinity group will always appear doomed to fail. Consumer society fills our heads with slogans such as, Bigger is better, and quantity over quality, and strength in numbers. It should come as no surprise that the dream of a bigger and better mass movement is so prevalent among radicals of all stripes. We should not forget how much creativity, vitality, and innovation has come from those who resist being assimilated. Many times it is the tiny group that scorns the mainstream that makes the most fantastic discoveries. Whether indigenous pe- peasants in Chiapas or a gawky kid in high school, these are the folks that refuse to be another face in the crowd. The desire to achieve mass leads to many dysfunctional behaviors and decisions. Perhaps the most insidious is the urge to water down our politics in order to gain popular support. This all too common tendency leads to bland, homogenous campaigns that are a political equivalents of the professionally printed signs we see at so many protests and rallies, monotonously repeating the dogma of the organizer's message. Despite the lip service, paid to local struggles and campaigns, these are only useful to a dinosaur if they can be tied into, consumed by, the mass. The diversity of tactics and messages that come easily with hetero- heterogeneous groups must be smoothed out and compromised to focus on an easily digested, to focus an easily digested slogan our goal. In this nightmare, our message and action simply become means to increase registration rolls, to fill protest pens, or add signatories on calls to action, all measures of mass. We pay for these numbers with stifled creativity and compromised goals, ideas that would repel the media or expand a simple message beyond the slogan, No blood for oil, or Not my president are avoided, because they might provoke discussions and rifts of opinion, and thus reduce mass. The healthy internal debates, disagreements, and regional variations must be downplayed. Yet these are the very differences that make our resistance so fluid and flexible, leading to the brashest innovations. In these sadly predictable situations, the soundbite is king. At all times, the eyes remain on the prize, size. The desires for mass and homogeneity which go hand in hand limit nonconformist and radical initiatives by those who want to try something different. A common complaint about creative or militant actions is that they will not play well in the media, that they will take away from our message or that they will call perhaps alienate that they will perhaps alienate some constituency or another. Calls for conformity usually in the form of cynical chest-beating for unity are powerfully effective tools for censoring passionate resistance from those not beholden to mass politics. What is missing in our street demonstrations and in our communities is not unity, but genuine solidarity. In securing their own goals, dinosaurs use fear as a tool. They utilize the very real dangers we face in our daily lives in our communities of resistance. Mass organizations promise us security and strength in numbers. If you are willing to have your ideas, your issues, and your initiatives consumed by the dinosaur, you will be protected by its ample belly. No doubt, many people are willing to temporarily subsume their messages and particular forms of resistance for safety. However, the promise of safety, whether backed by protest permits or a huge list of supporters, are empty. The state has a long history of immobilizing mass movements. A dinosaur's supposed strength lies in its lumbering size. All the state needs to do is whittle away at any particular movement through arrest, co option, tiny concessions, and intimidation, and quote, seats at the table. As the movement is divided into groups that can be co-opted, and minority of radicals, its strength dissipates and morale plummets. This has been proven again and again to be an effective and time-honored technique of the state to dispatch any to dispatch of any movement for social and political change. There are other dreams, dreams of anarchy, that are not haunted by lumbering proto-dinosaurs. These are not dreams of quote, the revolution but of hundreds of revolutions. These include local and international forms of resistance that manage to be both inventive and militant. The monoculture of one big movement searching for the revolution ignores the lived experiences of ordinary folks. Anarchists in North America are creating something else, sometimes without even consciously knowing it, We are shedding the baggy skin of the dinosaur left and venturing out to create wild and unpredictable resistances, a multitude of struggles, all of them meaningful, all of them interconnected. The dreams of anarchists are the nightmares of the small-time dinosaurs, whether they take the form of Washington politicos, well-paid union officials, or party bureaucrats. Within a diverse swarm of individuals and small groups, resistance can be anywhere and time, everywhere and all the time. In the few short years since the late 90s, the mixture of the anti-globalization convergences, local activism, and campaigns, travelers, techies, and solidarity with international resistances has created something new in North America. We are replacing the mass movement with a swarm of movements where there's no need to stifle our passions, hide our creativity or subdue our militancy for the impatient it will appear that we are too few in gaining only small victories yet once we draw pretensions to mass supremacy we can learn that smallness is not only beautiful but also powerful delusions of control when faced with the unbridled wildness of reality Dinosaurs fall into fevered delusions of grandeur. In fits of madness, they recreate the world in their own overblown image, bulldozing the wild and replacing it with a wasteland that reflects their own emptiness. Where there was once the incredibly complex diversity of nature, there is now the dead simplicity of asphalt and concrete. These habits of control are deeply ingrained not only in dinosaurs, but also in everyone that come into contact with, including the most self-styled of revolutionaries. These delusions of control affect how we form relationships with other people, articulate our own thoughts, and live our own lives. If we look at American society, we cannot ignore the rates of domestic violence, the brutal self-interest, and institutionalized homophobia, sexism, and racism. Just as dinosaurs destroy physical ecosystems, they replace their social relationships with alliances and partnerships, based on efficiency, control, growth, and the pursuit of profit. Anarchists have been guilty of this, too. What was once a community becomes a movement. Friends are replaced with mere allies. Dreams become ideology, and revolution becomes work. Revolutionaries desperately attempt to control the world around them, a futile effort, since it is the twin-headed dinosaur of the source and the multinational business-saur that currently runs the world. Retreating from the, present, from the present, radicals too often live their lives as ghosts in some revolutionary past or future. It's no surprise that revolutionaries who actually believe their own rhetoric become burnt out, or worse, armchair theorists. It's easier to ponder the future than it is to do something about the present. Just as it is easier to theorize about the world than to interact with the world, it's much easier to theorize about how the revolution will happen than to make a revolution actually happen. Predictions and postulates about which group is the most revolutionary are even more ridiculous. The theorists, being con- consummate experts, reserve for themselves the right to appoint the ones who will actually create a revolution in the the comfortably far-off future. Who are they going to choose this time around? The workers? The proletariat? Youth? People of color? People in the third world? Anyone except themselves? No one knows what the revolution is going to look like. Least of all, the doddering armchair prognosticators, who ignore their own surroundings to contemplate the perfection of the dialect, People who stand with their feet on the ground instinctively sense that no book of revolutionary theory can capture every detail of the future. Much of what is called revolutionary is irrelevant to most ordinary folks. The voices of actual communities are alive in a way no theory could ever be, even if, for now, it takes the form of tiny acts of resistance. Who doesn't cheat on taxes, avoid cops, or skip class? These acts themselves may not be revolutionary, but they begin to unravel the control from above. Anarchist approaches must be relevant to everyday experiences and flexible enough to address struggles in different situations and contexts. If we can achieve this, then we may thrive in the world after the dinosaurs. We might even be fortunate enough to be in one of the communities that have a hand in toppling them.